Hello, this is the Pod Goblin's Hat, a podcast about the Moomins. This is episode 14, which is about bewitched times, eating jam, and that kind of hemilin. I'm Nina, a person who likes the idea of winter sports but has never taken part in them. I'm Dave, a person who loves indoor sitting whilst having unnecessary thoughts and fancies. And we're reading all the way through Tuve Janssen's Moomin's books together. It's the first time for me. Whereas if I wrote my memoirs, the Moomin's would be featured pretty regularly. We're reading the storybooks for children in order of publication, and eventually we will cover all of Tuve Janssen's Moomin stories. Today we're reading Moominland Midwinter, Part 2. Our theme for every book and every episode is relationships and our special theme for this book is death. Dave, do you want to remind us what kind of a death we're talking about? Death is not the end. Death is a symbol, an idea, and in terms of tarot and in terms of many other cultural understandings and spiritual understandings of death, death is a time of transition, of transference, metamorphosis... It is both an end and a beginning. So bear that in mind. (laughs) Not just for this podcast, just always have that in your mind. (laughs) Let's start the synopsis of part two. What just happened at the end of the previous half of this book was a funeral in which the squirrel, which was frozen by the Lady of the Cold, was carried off on the back of a snow horse. So the days go on. Moomin Troll, who is self-appointed keeper of all the Moomin family's property, notices that the Pete is going missing. And he's like, well, can't be little Mai because she's too small and it can't be too ticky because she only takes what she needs. So he follows the track in the snow made by dragging the bag to Pete. For people who are keeping note of the relationship between Moomin Troll and Too Ticky, he is the one who conceptualises Tutiki as only taking what she needs. And so by this part of the book, he's starting to get Tutiki. Yeah, though he's wrong here because it is Tutiki. Well, he's right here because it is Tutiki because she does only take what she needs and she needs the peat. She also needs the broken wooden garden furniture. She's built a massive bonfire on top of the hill and the bonfire is to bring back the sun. And when Moomin Troll protests about taking the garden sofa with the missing leg, she says, this bonfire is a thousand years older than your garden sofa. You should be honoured that it gets to be on the bonfire. And Moomin Troll has a little Moomin Papa-ish thought of, well, you know, then it'll be spring and there'll be more driftwood and maybe the sea will bring a new garden sofa. Trust in the sea. Yeah. For she will provide. Loads of other stuff is getting carried up the hill to heap on the bonfire, logs, twigs. But you can't quite see who's carrying them. They are the lonely and the rum that 
Tutiki has told us about, the weird winter creatures. And Moomintroll gets quite excited at the prospect of seeing them at the bonfire. Me too. I get excited about it too. They're definitely cool. Little Mai contributes her cardboard box, which is now all damp and holy. She's wrapped the mimble in a rug instead. (laughs) So Moomintroll shows up to the bonfire at moonrise, which is when Tutiki lights it. It's super exciting. There's all these weird creatures congregating around it. They look very mythological. Some of them are skittering around on really weird legs. Some of them have silvered horns. Some Mm. of them have big wings. He's really excited to meet the dweller in the cupboard in the bathing house, but Tutiki's like, no, no, he's not allowed to come out because we don't know what he would do. But look over there, there's the dweller under the sink. And the dweller under the sink is there, sitting by the fire. So we meet one dweller. (laughs) He's got huge, beautifully bushy eyebrows. And Moomintroll goes over and tries to make friends, but they have a language barrier. The dweller under the sink speaks a different language than Moomintroll, and it can't understand what Moomintroll's saying, presumably in Swedish. The dweller under the sink basically looks like a werewolf if the werewolf was one of those, like, grumpy little terrier dogs. Yes. (laughs) But with legs and arms. The language barrier immediately causes a problem. Moomintroll wants to compliment the dweller under the sink on his eyebrows, but ends up giving great offence. Moomintrog gets really upset at the thought that he'll live under the sink for a whole year more without <laughs> knowing that I just wanted to be friends with him. And Tutiki's like, such things happen. Get over it. Very relatable. <laughs> <laughs> Groke shows up. Everyone sort of flees from that side of the fire. And then she sits on the bonfire and it goes out. Yes, the tragedy of the Groke is revealed in its full glory. She just wants to be warm, but she (laughs) freezes everything she touches. It's really sad. Tutiki's like, and now she'll be disappointed for another year. I mean, if you didn't like the Groke before this book, I call you heartless if you still don't like the Groke. Luckily, I've always liked the Groke. Me too. (laughs) Moomintroll goes home to Mama, tells her in her sleepy state that the party wasn't very good, and the dweller under the sink goes back under the sink and mutters angrily to himself, but nobody will ever understand what he means. So the point of the bonfire was to encourage the sun to come back. Tutiki is fishing under the ice in the frozen sea, because that's where she likes to go. It's very peaceful for her. She's caught four fish. Moomintroll shows up at the hole in the ice and he comes to complain to Tutiki that he hasn't come back yet and Tutiki's like who and he's like my son hasn't come back yet (laughs) and she's like well just wait a minute he comes back on this day every single year I'm sure he's going to get round to it and she climbs out from under the ice and they sit around to wait they said there's a sun in the sky but me I can't imagine Oh, 
Little Mai comes skating along with tin lids tied to her shoes. She's invented ice skates. Yeah. She First of all, as soon as she came into the winter, she invented a toboggan. Now she's invented ice skates. And she's come to sit with them and wait, even though she's like a little bit disdainful about, oh, we're sitting around waiting for another wonderful thing. Yeah, but she's right. Moomintro does a lot of sitting around. (laughs) They wait and wait. And then, like, a tiny sliver of sunshine appears over the horizon and lights everything up in red. And Moomintroll is over the moon. He's dancing. He's kissing little Mai. He's throwing the fish up in the air. He's standing on his head. He's never felt so happy. And then the sun sets again. (laughs) (laughs) And it leaves him furious. He feels like he's been tricked. He's been hoodwinked. He feels shamed, I think. He feels ridiculous for having dressed himself up and got so happy for the sun to only come for like a minute. And he feels in his bones that he can only feel better if he does something really terrible and really forbidden. And if he does it right now, (laughs) which is the most relatable part of this book for me. And there's a really great line that says, like, of course, Tutiki was right. The sun can't come back all at once. But you know what? It doesn't help when others are right and you are wrong. Yeah, I also relate to that part. If there's anybody that needs one of those sad lights, it's uh, it's Moomin Troll. Like, maybe if he'd have had one of those lights for helping you with the winter months, he wouldn't have done this. But he does. He does do it. It's a real moment of like tragic inevitability. This seed was sown the moment that Tutiki said, don't open that cupboard and promise me you won't. He was always going to. Don't press the red button. This was always going to happen. So he runs past Tutiki into the bathing house, flings open the forbidden cupboard. And all the stuff that should be in the bathing house cupboard is in there. The bathing robes, the rubber hemulin that isn't quite airtight. Very creepy rubber hemulin that sort of like looks like a dead body in there. And in there also, there's like a little creature, a little hairy creature with a long tail and a snout. And it runs past Moomin Troll and out of the bathing house. And Tutiki's like, so you couldn't keep from opening the door. And he's like, oh, it doesn't matter. It was just like a little rat. And she's like, that's no rat. That is a troll. That's what you were before you were a Moomin troll. That's what you were a thousand years ago. Intense kind of trip that Moomin troll is on in this experience of like, he's seen this wild bacchanalian ritual. He's like done his little dance for the sun and it's been disappointed. And then he's let out the missing link of Moomin experience. Like he's taken some bad drugs is what I'm saying. He goes back to the house. He looks through the Moomin family picture album. <laughs> they all look so grumpy. It's like those Victorian pictures where everyone looks grumpy and it's actually because it took ages to take a photo. Right. And that's why they all look grumpy in Victorian pictures, by the way. Is you had to stand there really still for ages. Little Mai comes by to make fun of him and is like, I hear you've let out your own forebear and there's quite the family resemblance. And he's like, shut up, please. Yeah, she's dead into the <laughs> gossip of it. Little Mai is having a great book. I don't think that Little Mai ever doesn't have a great book, but this is a particularly great book for her. The ancestor has climbed up into the chandelier, which has been all wrapped up for the winter. Moomin Troll sort of chides him and is like, careful, that's an expensive chandelier. And then he remembers the miscommunication with the dweller under the sink. And he's like, 
he's a thousand years old. Like, what if we don't speak the same language? What if I offend him and he's a relative? And then what if he stays for ages? Because relatives do that sometimes. And there's like this bad atmosphere because I've offended him. So let's just not use words. Let's just not speak. So he like hushes the ancestor and he decides, well, since this guy is a relation, I'm going to do what we do when relatives come and stay. I'm going to show him around the house. (laughs) So he shows the ancestor all the pictures on the walls all the dining chairs, shows him everything, and the ancestor is not interested in any of this. But then he sees the stove and he's like, aha! And the ancestor sort of jumps into the stove. He's like, yes, this is my place. And Moomin Troll's like, so he really is my ancestor because Mama says we used to live behind stoves and he's gone in the stove. The next morning, the ancestor has redecorated that room. He's got all kinds of broken things, broken furniture from the attic and made sort of a nest or a thicket out of them. He's rearranged all the pictures on the walls. He's hung some of them upside down. He's put the alarm clock in the slot pail because uh, it rang when he was there and he got scared. And Moomin Troll at first is like, oh, what will Mama say when she wakes up and it's all a big mess? But then he's also like, I I quite like this. This is how my forebears slept. And he decides to start sleeping in the thicket of furniture in the sitting room as well. And it makes him feel close to his roots. And when I was a little child, this was the most exciting idea that I'd ever heard. Like, I loved the idea of just like taking all of the furniture, piling it in a big pile and finding your little nook and nest inside this thicket of kind of junk. I always wanted to experience that. I kind of got close at times in like bunk beds with various things wrapped around me. Yeah. But like this kind of idea has always appealed to me. Taking all the stuff that's meant to do other stuff and just making it your home. Uh, I don't know why it appeals to me so much, but it really does. It's really comforting to Moomin Troll, who has spent this whole book feeling really lonely. It also awakens his sort of aristocratic pride in his pedigree and he's (laughs) like oh it's really cool that like i come from this long line of moomins unlike someone like little mai who just was born by accident (laughs) (laughs) everybody has ancestors no one popped into existence indeed it's even more ridiculous because whilst he can look at these pictures and they do look i guess quite posh back in the 1800s when that picture was you know, his actual literal ancestor is like skittering about his house, hiding behind a stove <laughs> and can't apparently talk. I think that that makes him a cool ancestor. It doesn't make him a posh ancestor. Yeah, if you're trying to posh up your back catalogue and go, look at my great lineage, then I don't know if pointing to the ancestor is going to really impress anybody. It's the same way that people arguing against Darwin's theory of evolution were very offended at the idea that we came from apes. Right. And that we are apes. Right, indeed. So the days very gradually start getting longer. The sun comes out for a tiny bit longer each day and some new people start to arrive. First comes a thin dog with a woolly cap on his head. This dog is called Soryu. Soryu! The Lady of the Cold has taken everybody's food. There are rumours of desperate Hemulans eating their own collections. It says probably not their collection, but probably another Hemulans collection. There are also rumours that in Moomin Valley there is a jam cellar, which is true. And who started those rumours? <laughs> but Moomin Troll has been keeping this very quiet. But Little Mai hasn't. No. <laughs> so, sorry you arrives, swiftly followed by a flock of little creep. 
A flock of small creep, I believe. There's a filijonk. There is a gaffsy. Remember gaffsy from Moomin Mimble and Little Mai. And the gaffsy is pretty grumpy in this. She's pretty which grumpy. Would be what you'd expect from a gaffsy if you've seen the picture in Moomin Mimble and Little Mai. There are wampers. Although not our Wumper, I don't think. No, they're old Wumpers. They're mostly older Wumpers. <laughs> They've all come looking for food and shelter. They've all had a terrible time of winter. And they all settle in the bathing house. And uh, they're not allowed in the cave because little Mai says that the Mimble must not be disturbed. <laughs> and then Moomin Troll grudgingly sort of invites them into the Moomin house. And to do this, he has to find a way in for them without everyone coming in through the roof. So he tunnels toward what he thinks is the door misjudges it, tunnels toward a window. He's like, oh, I could come in through the window, but I guess if we do that, I've got to break the window. He's like, all right, break the window pane. <laughs> That's right. He is becoming an anarchist slowly, but he's getting there. Well, it also echoes the moment in Finn Family Moomin Troll when Moomin Mama breaks the window pane. Absolutely. Or in Moomin Summer Madness when like they let their possessions sink into the water, that sort yeah. of thing. <laughs> It's like you, you can be polite up to a point. Yeah. You can look after your property up to a point. But ultimately, being kind, connecting with other people actually matters more to a Moomin. So we finally find out who is sleeping in the Moomin house. It's Mama, Papa and the Snork Maiden and the Ancestor. There is no sniff. There's no sniff? There's no Snork, no Hemulin. Snork Maiden is there, but why is it? Only now we've heard about a Moomin troll. That's a question we'll ask you again later on. <laughs> so he invites everybody in. Sorry, who doesn't want to come in. He stays outside to listen for the wolves. Moomin troll's like, don't they scare you? And he's like, my great strong brethren. I love them and I'm scared of them. That's what's so sad. Super relatable. So sorry, you is very emo. And then finally, another arrival. Announced by a loud and piercing bugle. The noise upsets the ancestor. It alarms everyone. It is a massive Hamulin on skis, playing a bugle in a stripy yellow and black jumper. As Tutuki puts it, that kind of Hamulin. What I've called him in my notes is the jock Hamulin. That's right. Brass horn. <laughs> kind of Mr. Toad-esque in some ways. Yeah. Like, they're on skis. Making a big amount of noise. He shows up at the door. He asks, have you got any slaloms? Uh, Moomin Troll goes into the house and asks the assembled creatures, have we got any slaloms? And they haven't, but they have got a little creep who's been crying about seeing herself in the mirror and taking refuge in the Meersham tram. She says, not slalom, but I'm Salome. And he's like, good enough. Goes back out and goes, sorry, no slaloms, but we do have one small Salome. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Which the Hemingin's not particularly interested in. No. He's much more interested in fresh air and work ethics, winter yeah. swimming, building igloos, <laughs> doing gymnastics, <laughs> eating vegetables. He is exhausting to even read about. Yeah. <laughs> to put it frankly, he's not our kind of Hemulin, either of us. <laughs> No, but he's such a great character. He's a brilliant character. He's obsessed with health. He wants to sleep outside in an igloo because even though Moomin Troll sort of grudgingly invites him in, he's like, thanks, never. I think the stuffy air is bad for you. Sitting around indoors, it gives you the wrong kind of thoughts. Yeah, he says indoor sitters have unnecessary thoughts and fancies. <laughs> They offer him some food, which is fish. And he's like, no, I only eat berries and vegetables. And then like, before you know it, he's swimming in the river. 
Yeah. <laughs> Everybody sat around feeling desperate and depressed about they haven't got much food, they've lost their housing, the winter's never going away. And he just comes and it's like, I love all this stuff and you should too. And why don't you? Come on, pull yourself together. <laughs> Tutiki really doesn't like him and starts hiding for longer and longer periods of time under yeah. the sea ice, fishing. How very different people are. <laughs> Moomin Troll really feels that he should like him because he's like, I've been wanting a cheerful person about the house, but somehow he just can't bring himself to. Right, be careful what you wish for, Moomin Troll. This is what social people are like. <laughs> None of the guests, we're calling them guests now, None of the guests really like him. He keeps like popping his head in early in the morning and suggesting they all do outdoor exercise when they want to be sitting around indoors and retelling stories. But Salome the little creep is very taken with him and remember that for later. The Hemulin really likes Soryu. Yeah, he wants a dog, doesn't he? Really would like to have a dog. Yeah. Which makes sense with his MO, like what the kind of yeah. character he is. It feels like he should have a dog to be outdoorsy with. Yes, exactly. Little Mai is very interested in the skiing. Yes. So we get a skiing episode. The Hemulin, obviously he's super good at it. Little Mai takes to it with typical Mai-ish fearlessness, makes her own skis out of an old barrel and like... Manage it first go, basically. Yeah, she doesn't get to invent skis, but she cottons on to skiing very quickly. Moomin Troll actually finds himself feeling quite proud of her, tells a Philly junk that they're friends, they've been friends for a long time, and then the hair millin is like, how about you, Moomin? <laughs> Let's teach you how to ski. And just like basically peer pressures Moomin Troll into trying the skis when Moomin Troll never wants to. And he gives him loads of tips and he's like, have you got that? Have you got that? Got to keep a cool head. And Moomin Troll's like, no. And he's like, got to keep the skis straight. Bend your knees. Burn forward. And he's like, remember all that? And Moomin Troll's like, I cannot remember all that. And then basically like pushes him down a gentle slope. Moomin Troll falls. The assembled guests are very amused. They have a second go. He falls again. The guests are even more amused. The Hemulin says, oh, next time will be better. But there isn't a next time because Moomin Troll never tries again but crucially he imagines that he did he imagines trying again and being wonderful at it and everybody applauding him but that never actually happens he goes back inside says the rest of you can ski all you like i'll be indoors not doing the thing but imagining you did seeing all the applause the celebration when you did it and then afterwards, not quite being sure if that really was the like maybe it did happen maybe it did happen I literally have school memories like that, where I've over time thought about them so many times that I kind of feel like they happened, even though they didn't. <laughs> Little Mai learns all she can from the Hermulin about skiing and then promptly loses interest in him. So the only person still interested in the Hermulin is the little creep Salome, and she wants to tell him that she admires him, that she loves his bugle, but her steps are so much shorter than his that she can't keep up, and so she's always running after him, trying to tell him about her admiration for him, and he doesn't notice her, and then when she finally catches up, he puts up down the bugle and like, goes and does something else, and so nothing is ever said, but she loves him. Unrequited love. Yeah. More and more guests join Two Tiki Under the Ice, fishing because they really don't like the Hemulin. And so Moomin Troll and Tutiki hatch a plot. And this story, if it was written now, this would be the group chat and it would never <laughs> get overheard. But unfortunately, 
Moomin Troll and Tutiki do not have a group chat and they have to have this conversation in person. And Salome overhears it. And the plot is, let's send him to the Lonely Mountains. Let's tell him they've got even better slopes. They've got slaloms aplenty. You know, it'll be better for us. It'll be better for him. You know, we don't want to admit that we don't like him. So let's hoodwink him and send him away. And Moomin Troll's like, but they haven't even got snow there. There's no way that you could ski. And Tiki's like, never mind. Just, we just need him to leave. Salome is shocked and appalled. She stays up all night worrying about her Hermulin. She can't believe that they want to send him away. She resolves to save him. They want him to die or something. But she stays up so late worrying that then she sleeps all through the next day. The next day, Moomin Troll goes over to the Hermulin to execute the plan. He tells the Hermulin he wants a chat. The Hermulin's like, that's great! You aren't very chatty, are you? <laughs> Come and chat to me! And so he tries. He's like, oh, have you heard of the Lonely Mountains? There's like really steep slopes and stuff, and maybe you would like it like for skiing. And the Hermulin is initially pretty interested. He's like, oh, that sounds good. That sounds like my kind of thing. But then Moomin Troll is struck with guilt and undoes it all and is like actually you shouldn't do that i've been misinformed i've misinformed you i'm so sorry you shouldn't go there there's no snow you can't ski actually uh, i want to learn to ski would you stay so he goes with the intention of telling the hemulin to leave and ends up extending an actual invitation to stay but at the same time as he extends that invitation he also makes the lonely mountains sound so much better and cooler to the Hemulin. Yeah. With every comment about how dangerous it is, how impossible it will be, the Hemulin gets more excited <laughs> by the idea. Yeah. He muddles this up twofold. Like if Moomin Troll was a bit cleverer, he might have decided to do this as a tactic to persuade the Hemulin to go. Yeah. Salome doesn't know that the plan has failed because she has slept through the whole day. Then it starts to snow. Moomin Troll has never actually seen the snow come down before. He thought it just sort of grew out of the ground or something. So it's quite an exciting moment. It's actually quite beautiful, which he hadn't realised. He hadn't realised you could actually like the snow. It's the second moment in this half of the book where we see that Moomin Troll is kind of becoming more into yeah. the winter. So like in the in the first chapter we looked at, there was a line that says Moomin Troll was getting accustomed to the bewitched time of winter. And then in this part, he basically falls in love with the snow as it yeah. falls. So he dances with it, he gets flown around by it, he gets frightened by it, he gets angry with it, but comes out the other side liking it. Well, yeah, because it changes from a snowfall to a blizzard. <laughs> and that's when he gets angry. But then he realises that a, even a blizzard can fit with you, can, can support yeah. you if you don't fight it, if you lean into it. He remembers in the summer catching a wave. And it's the same feeling. And he kind of catches the wind. And it's very much for me, you'll be unsurprised listeners to know, I could see a Shakespeare reference in this moment. <laughs> and it felt very much like Lear shouting into the storm yeah. and like raging and all of that but it has a more positive outlook than Leah and he kind of makes his peace with the storm Meanwhile Salome wakes up in the middle of the blizzard and is like alive with fear 
for the Hemulin. She doesn't know that the plot has failed. She's committed to going and saving the Hemulin. She can't find him. Everybody else has gone down to the bathing house for dinner. Like, the house is empty. The Hemulin is not in his igloo. And so she sets out little tiny little creep Salome in the, you know, the really deep snow looking for the Hermulin. Moomin Troll eventually finds his way to the bathing hut as well and learns that, oh, well, now that you're back, only one person's missing, Salome. But the Hermulin goes out to look for her because he's got his snowshoes, he's massive, and his nose is really good. They mention that Soryu's nose is usually quite good, but it's emotionally impaired at the moment <laughs> because of all of his longing for the wolves. Because, like, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but every night... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, he was sleeping all day, and then every night he goes to his pit of longing and waits to hear the wolves and howls back to them. So he's not in any state to be searching out Salome. The Hemulin, with his nose, tracks her down. He realizes, oh, first she went to my igloo, and then she went over here. Oh, she was looking for me. And as he's following her scent, and he's thinking about all the experiences I've had with Salome, he realizes that, like, oh, she's actually very fond of me, and I've been quite unkind but that's all right because hemulins don't feel guilty no but it is like the scene in a teen romance movie where the jock or the uh, attractive girl like goes back over their memories and realizes all of the ways that they've been loved by somebody that by they the thought they fought beneath them <laughs> uh, yeah by the little creep yeah that's right but he doesn't feel guilty he just feels like a little bit more interested in her only a little bit though to be fair yeah he finds her under a bunch of snow, like digs her out, scoops her out and goes, it's all right, it's just me, here I am. And he tucks her inside his jumper. Oh, it's so romantic. <laughs> and then he snowshoes back to the bathing hut. By the time he gets back to the bathing hut, he's forgotten about her again. Um, and he's thinking about hot syrup to drink instead. After the storm, Hemulin decides he's leaving after all. That accidental reverse psychology worked. <laughs> The guests, all full of jam, start playing in the snow, having snowball fights. Soryu goes to his pit of longing, and it's even harder to get there now because, like, all the fresh snow. And he fantasizes so hard about joining the wolves that they materialize. Yeah, I mean, he, he well, he kind of stops paying attention to the world around him. So either it's kind of like magic, like Nina is implying, and he kind of manifests the wolves around him, or he just is paying so little attention that finally the wolves can creep up to get their prey. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the trees. It's coming. There's this great illustration of... Soryu in his pit of longing throwing his hat in the air and wagging his tail to show like he's inoffensive and then there's all these yellow eyes shining out of the darkness between the trees the wolves have found him and they do not want to play with him they want to eat him yeah and he basically wears a wee willy winky hat and like a cloak so he looks very bedraggled and sad and, and mournful uh, and not very capable of dealing with one wolf let alone a pack. And he has this moment of self-awareness as he's about to die. He's like, they never wanted to play with me. I could have slept during the night all this time. And now I just have, you know, a few seconds left of my life to think about how foolish I've been. But then a loud blare of a bugle frightens away the wolves and the Hemulin shows up on his snowshoes. And he assumes that Soryu is waiting for him. <laughs> and Soryu is like, yeah, sure, why not? Might as well. <laughs> And they go together to the Lonely Mountains. Oh, 
And this is the beginning of the end of the story. After that, the guests all sort of trickle out, taking the last of the jam with them. And soon it's just Tutiki, Moomin Troll and Little Mai, like it was at the beginning. Even the mysterious winter creatures have gone. Spring is coming. Moomin Troll finally has a little think about the Snork Maiden. Only a little think. <laughs> Tutiki turns her hat the other way around, blue side out. And she starts sort of spring cleaning, ready for the Moomin family to retake possession of the bathing hut. Yeah, it turns out that Tutiki's not just about the winter. She's really just about wherever she is. Yeah. And so as the seasons change, Tutiki adapts and likes wherever they are, you know? And Moomin Troll's like, why weren't you all like cheerful and springish back when I met you? Couldn't you tell I was so miserable? And she was like, it wasn't the time for that then. <laughs> you had to find your own piece of it. One has to discover everything for oneself and get over it all alone. So it's yeah. good advice, bleak advice, but true advice. But also she didn't really leave him to do it all alone because she's been here all booked. Exactly. She, it's the kind of leaving your child to learn things, but keeping an eye on them from a distance. Yeah. At the beginning of the spring, Moomin Troll couldn't really see it, but he starts to see signs of it. The snow starts falling off the trees. The sun is up in the sky for longer and longer. And one day, he can open the front door. And the house is all a mess. Nobody's done the washing up all winter. Yeah, I mean, there's no excuse for that, (laughs) Moomin Troll. You could have washed up. There was nothing stopping you from washing up. Oh, it's the winter. I can't wash up somehow. I don't think any boys do any washing up in the Moomin house. I think it's all Moomin Mama. Learned helplessness, isn't that the phrase? He sees that the house is all in a mess, like the ancestor is redecorated in a way that he thinks that Moomin Mama won't like. He airs it all out and the fresh air of spring blows through the Moomin house and lifts the dust. And at this point, the narration says, this is where it should end. (laughs) But if I end it here... You won't hear what Moomin Mama had to say, so we can't stop now. And so on we go. Also, listen, a number of other things that you'd miss out on. (laughs) Yeah, but the first is, what will Moomin Mama say? And that's important, for sure. (laughs) You would also miss the cracking up of the sea ice, which is a very dramatic moment. I mean, it's great because it goes into depth on all of the things that are going to happen. It's like quite a long last chapter anyway. It spends like a whole page of it telling you what's going to literally happen the next page. (laughs) So Little Mai has upgraded her ice skates. She was using tin lids under her shoes. She's fully tied kitchen knives under them now. Yeah, kitchen knives. 
And she loves to skate out on the frozen ice of the sea and like make figure eights. She's got super good at that as well. And she's doing that when the sea ice starts to crack. And Tutiki and Moomin Troll see it happen and Tutiki's like, mm, I think she should probably come back now. And Moomin Troll's like, I need to rescue her. So out he runs, heroic Moomin Troll. Like when his father saved the Hermulin aunt, same sort of instinct. Yep. His chivalry is awakened. Or moving troll saving the snort maiden in Comet yeah. Moomin Land. We're always saving each other in these books. And Tutik even has a little think about that. It's always like this in their adventures, to save and be saved. I wish somebody would write a story sometimes about the people who warm up the heroes afterwards she says so she goes into the bathing house to like start boiling some water which is a fatal mistake so she's watching them through the windows of the bathing house and like moomin troll is heroically running out there to save little mai and then like little mai hops on his back and he starts running back but the ice flows are all separating and he's having to (laughs) jump from block of ice to block of ice and little mai is directing operation like dude jump now but Moomin Troll needs to be witnessed, as we learned in the first half of this book, when he's doing something heroic. He could have gone over the Lonely Mountains to Snufkin, if Snufkin only knew. He could have saved Little Mai, if only Tutiki had stood wistfully at the shore and watched him. But he doesn't know he's being watched. And so he finally slips and falls into the freezing cold water. Little Mai jumps off his head. She decides to jump on the head because she knows that if anything goes wrong to him, she'll survive. She says that when she gets on. Uh, Tutiki realises her mistake and runs out and fishes Moomin Troll out of the water. Stupid of me. Of course he can't know that I've been looking on all the time. She fishes him out. She's like, do you want some hot syrup? And he's like, no, I've got to go home. I'm so cold. And she's like, OK, but make sure you drink some hot syrup. On the way home, he meets a little squirrel. Squirrel looks exactly like the squirrel with the marvellous tail from the beginning of the book who died and was carried off by the horse. This is the page that the footnote told us to come to. We've got there in the end. Moomin Troll's like, are you the squirrel with the marvellous tail? And the squirrel's like, well, I have got a marvellous tail. And he's like, but was it you before? And he's like, I don't remember very much. He's like, do you remember the lady of the... And he's like, I don't remember. You know, my memory, meh. So uh, Moomin Troll would like to stop and investigate this further to be sure whether it's the same squirrel or not, but he's too cold. For all that footnote promised you a definitely alive squirrel, the book refuses to give you that comfort. And I really like it for that. And keeps it ambiguous. Yeah. Maybe all squirrels have marvellous tails. The moment he gets through the door, Moomin Mama's motherly instincts know that he's got a cold. And she wakes up. There's a disturbance in the force. <laughs> As we've seen, actually, she has this magical ability. Anytime Moomin Troll is in danger, she will know about it. She did in Moomin Summer Madness, and she does here. She knows now. But that also means that nothing that's gone before this was really danger enough. The loneliness did not warrant Moomin Mama waking up. Well, he needed the loneliness. Yep. He's been on a journey. It's been important for him to go on yep. this journey. And because he's been on this journey, as he says earlier in this chapter, he gets to sort of say, now I've got everything. I've got the whole year, winter too. I'm the first Moomin to have lived through an entire year. And that's cool. That's worth having. She would have denied him that if she'd have woken up. So she looks after Moomin Troll. She puts him to bed. She relights the fire. She makes a magic potion and says some magic words over it, feeds it to Moomin Troll. Proper magic. 
told to her by her foremothers as well, like passed down through generations. Yeah, it's very witchy. Moomin Troll wants to tell her about everything. She's like, yes, yes, but after you've had a nap. And he's like, well, just before I go to sleep, don't light a fire in the stove because the ancestor's in there. Which is a very important bit of information. I'm glad he passed it on. It is. So Moomin Troll sleeps. You know, he feels the burden of responsibility lifted from him because Mama's awake. Mama goes around the whole house tidying up, doing the washing up. And then she's sitting on the veranda, burning a bit of film tape with a magnifying glass. Did you understand that? Because I don't. I don't know why she's burning the film with the magnifying glass either. I I didn't understand that. I don't understand it. But listeners, if you know why she likes to burn film with a magnifying glass, we'd absolutely be interested in hearing. I wondered if it was to do with the ancestor and the photo album. Oh, so he doesn't see all of the different generations. Oh, that's an interesting one. She tidies up everything and puts everything back in place, except she puts a sign on the stove saying, do not light, there's someone in here. And Tutiki and Little Mai come and talk to her, and Little Mai starts trying to tell her about the winter, and she says, no, let him tell the story himself when he awakes. And that's a really nice moment. It is nice that she says that, but later in the book, we will discover that Little Mai did carry on. Clearly, Little Mai has told her everything. Because <laughs> Moomin Mama knows absolutely everything before Moomin Troll tells her. Nearly everything, not quite everything. When Moomin Troll wakes up, he feels better, his throat isn't sore anymore, and he wants to show Moomin Mama the snow. Like He's like, Moomin Mama's looked after me, Like I want to look after Moomin Mama. There's finally some reciprocity in this relationship. Yeah, Takes her out and shows her the snow. Moomin Mama tries to make a snowball. She's not good at it like little Mai is. She does it in a mamaish way. And Moomin Troll's overcome with love for his mother and tells her that he loves her. And he owns up about giving away all the jam. And she's <laughs> like, I'm so glad you did that. Like, why do you think we make jam? Well, she says something like, people are always telling me that I don't need to make this amount of jam, but there's none of it left. So who was right? <laughs> Moomin Troll thought that he was in charge of the house in a like guarding the possessionist kind of way but she's like you were in charge of the house in terms of like you were a really hospitable host right and i would have been so upset if those creatures had come here and like nobody had looked after them it's so good that you looked after them so that's really nice as well next day everybody else wakes up <laughs> snork maiden as predicted by moomin troll goes straight to her green hat puts it on and is like it's the spring hooray and she finds the first crocus of the year like poking up from the soil and she wants to put like a glass cover over it to keep it warm and moomin troll's like no it'll be even better if things aren't so easy and what a metaphor that is <laughs> Indeed. It's time for Snuffkin to come back. He's excited about everything. We never see Snuffkin. We do have a picture of Snuffkin in the book. He doesn't arrive during the course of the book. Tutiki and Little Mai sort of play a spring tune on an accordion to sort of wake everybody up. Yeah, on a music box. It's not even an accordion. It's like one of those barrel organs with a monkey. Yes, and Little Mai is like the monkey. Dancing along, they go and wake up the Mimble. The Mimble <laughs> woke up in a rug. She's a little bit confused, but she's happy. And finally, Moomin Troll is so happy that he has to be alone. And he goes and runs through the woods with all the melting snow and the new green smells. And it's the end and the beginning. When storm clouds get around and heavy rains descend just remember that death is not the end and there's no one there to comfort you with a helping hand to lend 
Yes, like the death card itself. It is the end and the beginning. And Mimitro has learned to be comfortable and in his element being alone in this story about enforced isolation. For the tree of life is growing where the spirit never dies. Well done. So that was a lot. There's a lot, <laughs> a, a lot to synopsisize for you all. First of all, Nina, having read all of Moominland Midwinter now, this book that many people have said to you, oh, you're going to love that one. You're going to love that one. Everyone was right. It's the best one. So it wasn't overhyped for you? No. I think it's really hard to overhype this book. It's so good. It's really good. And even when you're trying to hype it up, you can't quite communicate how good it is, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I like this one best now. It's just got every sort of thing I love about the Moomins in it. It doesn't have Snufkin in it. Yeah. I was wondering about that. I was like, how do you feel about that? Like one of your favourites hasn't got your favourite in it. Well, it's got the idea of Snufkin in it. And it's got Tutiki. And it's got Tutiki, who I think is kind of almost an upgrade in some ways of Snufkin. Yeah. He wasn't there for this one because it wasn't his to have. No. And if he had been there for this one, Moomin Troll would have learnt nothing. Yeah. He had to have a foil. That's why it had to be yeah. Tutiki, not Snufkin. Yeah. But did you miss Snufkin? Not like I love Moomin Troll in this book so much mm. that I don't mind. In most other books, Moomin Troll annoys me, but this is Moomin Troll's book. Yeah. Like this is the one where he learns some stuff. He is pushed beyond his Moomin Trollness. He goes on such an amazing journey. Yeah. And it's interesting, like it's such an amazing adventure, but he never leaves his house. He goes through so many aspects of himself he's first attached to the sofa right but by the time little Mai says farewell to your sofa he's like i never needed it yeah exactly he learns to go beyond property yeah i mean in my notes for chapter five i sort of conceptualized moomin troll's journey at that point as being that in previous chapters he'd kind of gone into his papiness and then he had liberated himself from his papiness, thrown off the chains of being a Moomin Papa. And in chapter five, he embraces his mammoness. Yeah. He goes, the most important thing is to keep these people safe. He becomes the Ur Mama himself. Yes. He, he brings does. them all into the house the way that Moomin Mama has brought all of his friends into the house. He feeds them, he looks after them, and is happier doing that. Yeah. And he falls in love or in in like with the winter. He understands yeah. the winter. He understands being alone. He understands the value of being sad sometimes. Well, that's that moment at the end that he's so happy that he wants to be by himself. Right. It's not a sad thing for him anymore. And he finds a new person to love as well. I think yeah. that there is a kind of romance with, with Two Tiki.
sort of transitioning seamlessly into the relationship chat and I tracked a few of them through this. There's a really interesting, not quite complete love triangle. Salome loves the Hemulin. The Hemulin loves Soryu. Soryu loves the wolves. <laughs> <laughs> and the wolves are not interested in any of them. <laughs> They're interested in eating everyone. <laughs> There's Moomin Troll and Tutiki, like you were talking about. I also think Moomin Troll and Moomin Mama is a really interesting one yep. in this. I've sort of, I've reconsidered my opinion on the dedication. I can see now why this book is dedicated to Ham. I absolutely can too. So talking about like Moomin Troll's love triangles, of which have become hexagonal at this point. He loves Moomin Mama, he loves Snufkin, he loves... Tutiki. Do you think he still loves the Snork Maiden? That's an interesting question, of which this passage may help us to decide. For the first time in many weeks, Moomintrol went and looked carefully at his sleeping papa and mama. He also held the lamp over the Snork Maiden and regarded her musingly. Her fringe fluff had a nice gleam in the lamplight. She was very sweet. As soon as she awoke, she would rush to the cupboard and look for her green spring hat. I would say that if one wished to have a reading of it this way, one could see that as a very gay man talking about a cis woman kind yes. of passage. Yes. Like, very sweet. She's so beautiful. She's going to wear a lovely hat. I want to dress her in her hat. But there's nothing overtly desirous there. No, no. That is not there. And so, you know, it's very possible that the role that the Snort Maiden plays for Moomin Troll in these books is of the idea of a relationship that he likes to inhabit, but not one that he actually desires. Yeah, that passage made me sad for Snort yep. Maiden. It's like, oh, very sweet. Yeah. It's also a little bit patronising. Yeah, I mean, I know many women who in their teenage years have discovered after a little bit of time that they were going out with a gay guy who had not yeah. yet uh, come out to himself or to the yes, world around yes, him. that's me. That's, one of them is Nina, but she is not alone. <laughs> there are lots of us. There are so many of them. And I think that passage is for those girls to go like, oh, I, I let's not assign value it's not bad if your boyfriend is gay that's not a bad thing about him or about you is what i'm saying absolutely not it's not bad for anybody apart from maybe during the duration of the relationship it might be frustrating for you if you're the girl there's something very beautiful about that realization discovering my boyfriend's sexuality was a lovely secret between us for a while there was a sort of lovely closeness in that relationship after we had both admitted what was the case, that ours was not a relationship of mutual sexual attraction. It was lovely. He's probably turned out to be a lovely man. I haven't spoken to him recently, but last I heard he had two boyfriends. Good for him. I don't want to just like paint that dynamic as necessarily sad. No. But um, what I would say is, you know, I'm in the process of transitioning from a relationship into a friendship. Mm -hmm. And I also want to make it very clear to people when talking about that experience that the ideas we've been sold by society don't have to be the ones that we walk through. 
like so you can absolutely have a positive end of a relationship you can absolutely have a positive end of a of a relationship between a straight person and a gay person too and so you're making that very clear and these things are important but it's also important for me to remember and for you to remember there are loads of people that these are horrible traumatic experiences for yeah i don't think this is positive for the snork maiden the thing is moomin troll has not understood yet that he doesn't feel like that about the snork maiden this passage does make me a bit sad for the snork maiden yeah, which is good because we should have more sympathy for the Snort Maiden and maybe the author or translator should have had more sympathy for her in previous books as well. Yeah. Justice for the Snort Maiden. Shall we talk about Salome and the Hermulin next? Do you want to start about the name Salome? So the gag, as we've said, is this kind of confusion between Slalom and Salome. Yeah. Salome is the feminine version of Shalom which many people may have heard. It's the Hebrew word for peace, but it's also a greeting or a kind of farewell that many Jewish people will give, like a blessing or a a way of saying peace. And so that is one of the things that make up the idea of who Salome is. Salome is also a biblical figure. She was the daughter of King Herod who was trying to arrest all of Jesus' disciples after Jesus died. He's like the big bad for the New Testament. Yeah. There's not a lot about Salome in the Bible itself. In fact, she isn't named until like quite a lot later. But there is then a rewriting of the story of John the Baptist's capture and killing by King Herod. This is kind of biblical times fan fiction culture a very incidental character that not enough was filled in in the text became the obsession of the fans they wanted to build her out extend her story yeah i'm going to talk specifically about oscar wilde's play salome so salome was written in french because you were not allowed to represent biblical figures on stage in the uk at the time the uk is such a joke place i know So the way that Oscar Wilde rewrites the story of Salome is he casts her as a kind of femme fatale, as a kind of unrequited crush-having woman. So Herod has had John the Baptist captured, and while he's in prison, Salome falls in love with him. Like She's so interested in his hair and in his face, and she wants to kiss his lips. And uh, John the Baptist is really not into this, and he's all like, repent, repent, stop it. You will never kiss these lips. And even like puts himself back in prison rather than be near Salome. And so then when his head is finally chopped off, Salome lifts up the head and like kisses the lips. And that's the final scene. Yeah. Because everybody knows the thing she does to please. She's just a little tease. So that's sort of the opposite of this Salome and what she does with her unrequited love. Like, it's really aggressive. It's really non-consensual. Yeah. It's really violent. It's such a interesting depiction of that relationship because it's such a perfect look at who the Hermelin is as well. He's not hurt by everybody not liking him because he doesn't notice that everybody doesn't like him. But equally, 
He's not affected by somebody trailing after him full of love. Right. I think he's such a great character because yeah. like I, I would meet him and not like him, but the great thing is he never actually does anything wrong. You can't make him sad. You could literally say to him, you're the worst, I hate you, and he would not hear it that way. He would either not hear it at all because he'd be too busy or he would be like, oh, that's an interesting way of saying a thing that I think. But he's relentlessly friendly. Yeah. He keeps suggesting all these like outdoorsy activities for everyone and everyone keeps saying no thank you and he just pats them on the head and goes, okay, you'll yeah. see one day that I'm right. He's got such internal confidence and self-love. Yeah. He's like, you know, Moomin Papa on steroids. Even the Hemilin has a kind of magic winter swimming is quite a magical thing like yeah. it's done in the context of exercise but you know it's a thing that witches do it's a thing mm -hmm. that people do at new year it's a cure in some ways i mean nothing cures depression but it is something that influences depression for some people yeah the point of it is it shocks you it forces yeah. you to have a physiological reaction and you know when you've had that you're so busy shivering it's hard to feel sad. And, you know, compared to the other Hemelins we've met, he's less depressed. And he's more social. If anything, social is his special interest. <laughs> no, health is. Health is, sportsmanlikeness, yeah, all of that stuff. What do you think of the vegetarianism, the message about vegetarianism? Well, I think, you know, I know many vegetarians who are lovely people and I'm not going to say anything negative about them, but... But Tuve might. Tuve might. So to talk about the magic in this book, there's so yeah. much magic in this book. As been mentioned, Moomin Mama does a spell. We've got this amazing magical ritual yeah. of the lonely in the rum fire and all of these amazing mythological creatures. Uh, jam is like magic. Yeah. Jam is summer in a jar. Yeah. Although there's an argument for every season being magical, for me, the most magical times are the transitional month, the spring and the autumn or the fall. And in Moominland Midwinter, it describes spring thusly. Now came spring, but not at all as he had imagined it coming. He had thought that it would deliver him from a strange and hostile world, but now it was simply a continuation of his new experiences, of something he had already conquered and made his own. He hoped for a long spring so that he could have his happy, expectant feeling as long as possible. And early in the morning, he went scuttling out in the valley to sniff the new smells and to look at the changes since the day before. And that is the magic of the spring. Yeah. And so I went, of course, to my book that I have previously recommended on this podcast. I knew you were going to come back to A Spell in the Wild. <laughs> a Spell in the Wild, A Year and Six Centuries of Magic by Alice Tarbuck. The most glorious of our winter traditions, I would argue, stem from Yule, the winter solstice. Solstice means sun stop, and that is what it does. The sun stops, it disappears, it hides away, barely rising, seeming to sit still at the horizon line rather than cresting the sky on its daily journey. Instead of sunrise, midday and evening, we have mostly variegated dark. As a response to these long days of darkness in the Northern Hemisphere, most of our winter traditions boil down to ways of coping with the lack of light. 
and ways of calling to the sun to get it going again. The spiritual equivalent of defibrillation. Do not stop now, we call. We cannot do without you. Please come back to life. We all become sorcerers of light for this month. From decking the halls to burning yule logs, our winter celebrations are, at heart, defences, measures we implement in the hope that, this time, the dark will not swallow the light entirely. That's a banger, Alice Tarbuck. I think that passage really gets us so much in this book, though. I mean, there is so much of this book that is relevant to Moomin Lad Midwinter, and I'm not going to read the entire book, though you listeners should. These are all from the same chapter, which is about December. It isn't surprising that humans quickly turn to introspection as the light fails. Just as plants show little external sign of life through the winter months, so humans too traditionally turn our attention indoors and inwards. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere then these short, harsh days are traditionally a time of telling stories, telling one another how the world works, passing on wisdom and information. Winter gives us what we need, lets us prepare before going back out into the world when the light returns. Winter can be seen as a time of healing, regrouping, of doing work on ourselves rather than work in the world. If that isn't Moomin Troll... (laughs) in this book yeah it's it's moomin troll it's also too ticky and all the guests the guests sit around inside the house all morning drinking coffee and telling each other stories and it's sorry you sorry you is communing with the eternal story of what it is to be a dog the tragedy of <laughs> dogness and it is also like the reader yeah the reader in this book goes on that journey. So yeah, the book itself is a kind of magic. You know, I think Tuve knows her books are magic spells. So I will read another passage from A Spell in the Wild. Simply noticing can reveal all kinds of things. For example, you may notice just how much like the plants and wildlife you are in winter. You are still growing, just more slowly. You are still beautiful, but less showy, less vibrant, more covered over. Like the landscape around you, you are undergoing slow, thoughtful change, whether it feels like it or not. That's a great transition into a topic that I want to talk about, which is evolution. So the concept of evolution in this book, we've got two examples of it. We've got the troll, the ancestor, which becomes Moomin Troll, and we've got Soryu in the wolves. So Moomin Troll doesn't recognise his ancestor when he comes out of the cupboard, but he's becoming more like the ancestor. At the beginning of this book, we said his fur is becoming woollier again. And indeed in that picture where he's letting the ancestor out of the cupboard, you can see he's gone woolly. He looks a little bit sheepy. He's inhabiting his ancestral space of next to the stove. He's reconnecting with his roots. And I think that is what Soryu wants from the wolves. So have you heard this more recent science about the evolution of wolves into dogs? Probably. I am a bit familiar with that kind of thing, but you lay it out. So uh, I read about it in Alice Roberts's book about evolution which is called Tamed. It's a really good book. I would recommend it. It's a book about a bunch of species that we have 
co-evolved with. I think the wolves are the first chapter. And what we've found out about this is that it happened so much longer ago than we used to think it happened. So prevalent theory about dogs is that we tamed wolves when we did agriculture, as if that was like a monolithic event across the world, which it wasn't. But anyway, that was what we thought had happened. But it happened so much before widespread adoption of agriculture. It happened probably in the Ice Age. And it probably helped the wolves as much as it helped the people. And it was probably as much of a decision by the wolves as it was by the people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, why do we assume that we domesticate animals? They get a lot from the arrangement. Yeah. They may very well domesticate us. Yeah. What do you want? Can you show me? So there's a new theory about dogs, which is that they domesticated us as much as we domesticated them. And we have co-evolved for so long yep. now. We have this really interesting way of understanding each other. We as humans are very, very good at reading dog expressions. Mm. And dogs are really, really good at reading our expressions. And it's because we've co-evolved for so long. Well, and also before wolves met humans they have amazing social interaction amongst the pack and so they came primed to understand social stuff and so did we when moomin troll thinks about a real troll and what a real troll is in comparison to him he's kind of facing the animalness of a moomin Mm. in the way that we as humans have to face the animalness of us when we look at say chimpanzee behavior or bonobo behavior yeah but it's also like about like looking at the uncivilized right the impolite like all of the things that a real Moomin wouldn't be like. Yeah. And he has to accept those parts of himself. He has to accept he is an animal. He's got a physical body that his parents aren't protecting. He protects his body now. And, you know, the animalness, the physicalness, like a lot of this book is philosophy, a lot of its ideas, mm. but there's also... There's the food and the keeping warm. And then you've got Saryu and the tragedy of the dog. And I sort of say that with my tongue in my cheek, but it's also a real thing. I mean, I've, I've had dogs. You've got a dog. You know, we can see their, their dreams of being wolves, but we can also see they're incapable of being wolves anymore. One word we've not used is fables. That's where I'm going with this. Yeah. The fableness of this story of dogness is very much a metaphor that I can relate to. Jean de La Fontaine was a French fabulist in the 1600s and he collected fables largely from Europe but also from the Middle East and India. Like Tuve, he's a political satirist and like Tuve, he is remembered for his, you know, his work for children although like his fables were actually written as political satire. Like now every French school child learns them. I can give you a bit if you want. Of course I want. I'm going to do it. Maître Corbeau sur un arbre perché tenait en son bec un fromage. Maître Renard, par l'odeur alléchée, lui tint à peu près ce langage. Oh, monsieur le corbeau, que vous êtes joli, que vous me semblez beau, sans mentir, si votre ramage se rapporte à votre plumage, vous êtes le phénix des hôtes de ce bois. Something about cheese, something about plumage. Very good. That was the story of the fox and the crow, but that's not actually the one we're going to talk about today, it's just the one I learned when I was six. The story of the house dog and the wolf is that a dog is walking through the woods and runs into a wolf. And the wolf is like, 
What a beautiful dog. He's got glossy fur, he's fat, he's well-fed, he's healthy, he's happy. How can I get what you've got? And the dog's like, oh, it's easy, just come with me, come out of the woods. There's like so much food, they feed you bones, and also you get strokes whenever you want them. And the wolf's like, cool, cool, great idea. And then the wolf notices a little bald patch on the back of the wolf's neck. And he's like, hey, what's that bald patch? And the dog's like, oh, that's from when they tie me up outside the house. Right. And the wolf's like, no, thank you. Enjoy your life. Runs back into the woods and is never seen by the dog again. It's a kind of reverse, sorry, but it's a good one. I think this book and also some of the books we've already read and definitely some of the stories that we're going to be reading in the rest of this season Mm. definitely fit with a fable vibe. Yes. The one that I thought of was the scorpion and the frog. Yeah. With Little Mai on Moomin Troll's head. That was a fable that seems to have come from Russia in the early 20th century, but there's different versions of it. There's the scorpion and the turtle from Persian fables. I think you should tell us the actual story because you haven't yet. A scorpion wants to cross the river, but he can't swim, so he asks a frog to carry it. The frog is like, hang on, you might sting me. And the scorpion is like, no, 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 I promise that I won't sting you you'll just be helping me out taking me from there to there i'd drown if i killed you in the middle of the river wouldn't i you'd go down and so would i so i can't swim so you can trust me there's no chance that i'll sting you <laughs> and the frog's like yeah that makes sense i uh, see your points you're making a good argument there scorpion all right why not and uh The frog carries the scorpion across the river, midway across. The scorpion stings him anyway, dooming them both. And the dying frog asks the scorpion why it stung, despite knowing the consequences to which the scorpion replies, I am sorry, I couldn't resist the urge. It is my nature. It's a good story. I like it. I do like it. It's a little bit grim. I think we can overcome what one might call our natures. We can decide not to be scorpions even if we've got a sting in our tail but you know it's true don't trust a scorpion that tells you that they won't sting you there's an interesting evolution based story based thing I wanted to bring up I'm going to read from the official Moomin website. This is the story of how Moomin Troll was born. The character Moomin Troll was born out of chance when Tuve Jansen, on one childhood summer day, discussed literary philosophy with her brother, Per Olof Jansen, by the outhouse next to their summer cottage in the archipelago. Tuve quoted Immanuel Kant who Per Olof immediately downplayed. To get back at her brother, Tuve drew the ugliest creature she could imagine on the outhouse wall. That drawing was the first glimpse of the Moomins, although Tuve called it Snork at the time. And that's the picture I've sent you. That is the Ur Moomin, the Snork. Let me describe it for the listeners. It has the snout. It's got sort of the body shape of a Hattie Fatner, like it's just like a little tube with tiny feet. And from this picture, I can't see any hands. And she's written snork underneath it. 
It was Tuve's uncle, with whom she stayed while studying in Stockholm in the 1930s, who came up with the name Moomintroll. Uncle Ina Hammersten was a doctor and cautioned Tuve against night eating. He tried to keep Tuve away from pilfering food by scaring her with moomintroles that lived in the cupboard. He said they pressed their cold noses against your leg and blew cold air down your neck. Her uncle also told her these creatures lived behind the tile stove. Moomintrol was Uncle Ina's and Tuva's mutual joke, scary folklore creatures that make themselves known through unpleasant sighs. In her journals, Tuva used the name Moomintroll to describe things that felt dreadful or ghost-like. <laughs> I'm going to send you another picture. This is of the ghost-like element. <laughs> so this is pen and ink drawing of some people sitting around in what looks like an attic bedroom. One person is telling the other two a story, and then there's a sort of ghost like surging up from behind that person and blowing on the back of their neck. So, in terms of Moomin Troll, the story, the Moomin's story ancestor, we've just met the ancestor. Yeah. So much of that kind of stuff, I think, is in this book. The ancestor being in the outhouse is literally what happens in this book. <laughs> Also, the other part of the book that it reminds me of that isn't the ancestor is that when Moomintrol is really angry with the Hemelin existence, doesn't like the Hemelin being there, Moomintrol draws a really angry drawing of the Hemelin. Yeah, on the stove. On the stove. <laughs> and yeah, that's what she did when she was annoyed with her Hemelin, her brother. It's kind of like Moomintroll in this book in two different kinds of ways. It's like going back to the beginning, the very beginning, before the Great Flood, going right back to the source of the Moomins, which was a less cute source. Yeah. So a lot of the entries for Natural History Corner for this book have been in jars and preserves. They have been, you know, the jam and the loganberry syrup from the first half of the book. The other thing that the wave of refugees, winter refugees, are coming looking for in Moomin Valley are rowan berries. Right. So rowan tree is a deciduous tree that grows here, that also grows in Nordic countries and is very symbolically relevant to Norse myth and also to Celtic myth. It's the tree of life. It puts out lots of berries and then like holds on to them way into winter. And there is a magical or superstitious belief that like if you see the rowan tree putting out loads and loads of berries, it's going to be a really difficult winter. And the other little bit of nature that we found is the crocus. The first crocus that comes pushing up through the sun-warmed soil. The snort maiden puts a jar over it, right? She just wants to. Moomin Troll doesn't let her. Yeah, that's true. He says, let it fight it out. I believe it's going to do still better if things aren't so easy. Yeah, which in some way means that Moomin Troll has learned to believe in beneficial suffering, but is also something that is true about herbs. 
in the garden, there are certain things that I fertilize that I give chicken poo to and comfrey juice to, like heavy feeders, tomatoes, pumpkins, all that stuff. But in the herb patch, you want to give them the most rubbishest soil and the least amount of sun because all of the beneficial properties of herbs are evolved to cope with harsh conditions. So you want really aromatic herbs, you want really smelly rosemary and thyme. Just like put them in the rubbishest bit with the rubbishest soil with no sun and they do do even better. Don't know if it's true of crocuses, but crocuses are often the first little shoots up after the winter and they're very pretty and they're very snork maidenish in their prettiness they they fit for her a crocus reminds me of tulipa as well in the first book yes buds that pop into beautiful things My last two things to mention are word-based. One is that the word dumb is used either by Thomas Warburton or by Tuve. I'm not a fan of any words that talk about people not being intelligent or not being bright. I'm not a fan of any of those words. and They're used all the way through the Moomin's books, like idiot, stupid, those kind of ones. Yeah. I'm trying to learn not to use them, but it's, it's really the idea I want removed. In this case, it is maybe referring to the original use of the word dumb, but that makes it even worse because I was going to say it's a very ableist word and I don't like it being there. It remains that in its original form. Yeah, And in fact, the relationship between its original form and its current form of language use show the ableism. It shows that we believe that if you can't speak, your intelligence is inferior. Yeah. So it means that we think people with disabilities are lesser and that people who don't think the way we think they should are lesser. Yeah. And we are here to tell you, or at least I am in this moment, that that's not true. No, it's not true. So, you know, let's stop using those words. I'm going to blame Thomas Warburton in this particular instance, but I'm equally sure that Tuve could have used that word. Yeah, this is a really common one in children's books even now. Ableism and words like dumb and stupid and moron and idiot are still so rife in children's fiction. I mean, so much humour as well is based around like laughing at somebody not being what we think of as intelligent. Yeah. So from here, we should go to the squirrel because we haven't discussed the squirrel yet. Do you think that the squirrel that Moomin Troll meets at the end of the book is the same squirrel that we saw die at the beginning? If it is not the squirrel we met at the beginning... It is still the squirrel that we met at the beginning in this death card way of something ends and something begins. Yeah. Like that all squirrels are maybe connected to the the greater well of squirrelness. But I also think it equally could just be the same squirrel. I think literally speaking it isn't because I believe that the squirrel did die. It was stiff, you know. But I really like that it's not answered for Moomin Troll. Or for the young reader. Yeah. Well, the young reader can decide. But also, I mean, this is the thing. It's multiple things are true. Yeah. Whatever your interpretation of it, however you want to cut it, mm. that's what it's telling us, that, yeah, that death is not the end. When the cities are on fire. 
you search in vain to find some law-abiding citizen just remember that death is not the end but the reason this works is because she's ascribed to this squirrel this forgetfulness which is his foolishness is why the squirrel can't answer the question because Moomin Troll says are you the same one from before do you remember the lady of the cold and squirrel's like no but I can't remember much and then he goes do you remember about the mattresses and he's like I know I know of lots of great mattresses This is a use of the stupid character or the forgetful character to make this ambiguity work. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I don't think Philip laughs at the squirrel as much as no. some things do. Like you feel affection for this squirrel. It is affectionate, but it's affectionate in the way that a lot of books are affectionate to disabled characters, meaning, oh, they're so cute. That's absolutely true. But I would also add to that, that we can all see ourselves in this squirrel, or many of us can. Yeah. What's your other word stuff? My other word that I looked up and learned from this book, because this is a regular feature of Dave Learns a Word, so we all have to, is cannonade. Cannonade, a period of continuous heavy gunfire. Can you read us the sentence that it's in? It's when the ice is cracking, right? And the reason that the ice is cracking is the cannonade. You're looking at me confused, but I'm going to prove it right now. Okay. The ice sagged, heaved and sank again, and every now and then thundered the cannon salute of festivity and destruction that sent delightful cold thrills up her back. Well, said Tutiki, and put her teacup down, the spring cannonade starting. I thought it was metaphorical. The ice heaved and more reports thundered. No, I think it's true. I think it's not metaphorical. You think they're they're actually firing cannons? I think that they are firing cannons to celebrate the start of the spring. Yeah, like, like fireworks. In the distance, the royalists, wherever they are. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, uh, you know, that's part of why he runs towards it, I think. You know, maybe he's in a, his latent papa's twitching. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it's like the vibrations of the cannons are crack, cracking the ice. So on this show, we like to ask questions to Snufkin, our religious figure, our shining light, our patron saint, guide and prophet, our crucifix around my neck. <laughs> <laughs> And we ask, what would Snufkin do about queries, dilemmas? They can be submitted by you, listener. And if you want to do that, you find us on social media platforms at The Pod Goblin. Or you can send an email. Our email is thepodhat at gmail.com. This week, I've got a question. What's your problem this week? I, 31F, and my co-chicken keeper... 38M were mucking out the hens, 1F, 1F, 1F and 1F, when a stranger stopped in the street to talk to us. He asked if we sold eggs, and I said no, we are not licensed to sell eggs, but we can give them away. And I gave him a box of four, and he went away. My co-chicken keeper became angry. What would Snufkin do? Well, quite the little exasperating drama there. Very good. (laughs) It's an excellent problem. It's a real problem. It really happened. And it talks to the issue of being shellfish. That was one too far. That got no laugh or even smile, just a look of disapproval. Was that 
random bystander that came by a Hemilin or a Philijonk. It's definitely Hemilin or Philijonk or Gaffsy behaviour. Why? Just walking around trying to buy eggs. <laughs> it feels like a slightly entitled thing to do is what I'm saying. People start to look at the chickens in the front yard quite a lot and quite a lot of them do want to chat to us about them. Yeah. This is the only person who's asked to buy the eggs. And it's quite common for people to sell or give away eggs if they keep chickens. Yeah. So I, I actually, you know, fair dues to this gaffsy or filajonk. <laughs> it's not that unreasonable. But anyway, the question wasn't, why did this guy do this weird thing? No, it's why is my co-chicken keeper so angry with me? Well, isn't your co-chicken keeper a little bit angry with the whole situation? Yes, he is. So that would include the gaffsy and the you. Like that you and the Gaffsy have conspired together to take his eggs off his plate. Yeah. <laughs> before he's had a chance to bite into them. So I can understand why one might feel a little bit protective to one's eggs. Right. But at this stage, it was spring. All four chickens were laying. We were getting like three to four eggs a day. That was more than we could use. And my co-chicken keeper's argument was we should keep them for people who deserve them. Now, I think that everybody deserves nice fresh eggs, so that's not really a, a discrimination we can make. It's a complicated one. Speaking as not Snufkin, who has not yet entered the chat, I think that arguments can be made in many different directions about who is deserving of eggs and who should have access to eggs. Now, what would Snufkin do? So, first of all, I think Snufkin would say, do you want those eggs? To who? To me. To you and to your co-ego. Well, we do, but my, my point is that we had a surplus. I think you would say, do you want those eggs? And what would your answer be? Yeah. I thought you'd say no. So you gave away eggs that you actually wanted. Well, I gave away eggs that I didn't need. I appreciate every single egg is a beautiful creation from the beautiful birds that live in the front of my garden. I mean, coacas are not that beautiful experiences, but, you know, they come out into the world, sure. Since starting to keep chickens... My appreciation of every single individual egg has skyrocketed. I, I'm very appreciative of the work that they do, of creating one every day, and all the eating that they have to do, and all the effort they make, and the songs they sing when they've laid them. But I also feel that everybody deserves that, not just us. The crucial thing here is you've got a surplus of eggs. You didn't need the eggs. Yeah. You do want the eggs, but you don't need the eggs. Now... The truth of the matter is, if Snufkin was that guy and he was walking past your house, if you weren't there, he'd just take the eggs and walk on, like he did with, with, the melon. with his melon. If you were there and he wanted the egg, he'd probably say, that's a nice egg, and he'd get talking to you about the egg, and then he'd say, can I have an egg? And I would have given the egg away. You'd have given it to him, and your co-egg haver would have been annoyed with you. Yeah. What Snufkin might say when presented with this story, though, is that... Nobody owns eggs. The chickens don't even own the eggs, but they're the closest to ownership of the eggs. The chickens do not care about the eggs once the eggs are out of them. And he'd say owning things is a slippery slope. You know, once you own them, they start to own you in certain kinds of ways. Exactly. It's made my co-chicken keeper miserly about eggs. That's your words, not mine. <laughs> What we need, what we want, who deserves things, a permeable, fluctuating paths within life and that you can never quite pin them down. You can only work with what you've got. And if you've got more eggs than you need, you should probably give them away. I think that that is what Snufkin would say. What do you think, Nina? 
So since that fateful day, we now have fewer eggs because that was before the chickens became broody. And so now we've always got at least one chicken who's not laying, who's harboring ambitions toward mother henhood. And so now we do not have a surplus, which is what my co-chicken keeper was worried about, that we wouldn't have a surplus. But the thing is, whether or not we gave away those earlier eggs, we wouldn't have a surplus now. Eggs have a shelf life, they just do. And so if you don't eat your eggs quick enough... So sure, like we could have dehydrated and powdered them. But I'm not going to do that. No, but then they wouldn't be as nice. Disgusting. Exactly. Eat your eggs timely, Lily. Eat your eggs fresh. The surplus was there then and we shared then and we don't have a surplus now. And so now we're not sharing. And when there's a surplus again, I'll probably share again. I think Snufkin would be 100% behind that. I don't think he'd even object to what your your co-egg have a would say though particularly because he does sort of like accept that people are just different they have different opinions as Tutiki says how very different people are that's what Moomin Troll says oh good point well sometimes Moomin Troll says sensible things so on this show we also like to recommend stories with the spirit of the Moomins. Something that just feels so very Moominish. A little sprinkle of Moomin. And this week, Nina is starting us off. So what's your spirit of the Moomins this week? My spirit of the Moomins this week is Strega by Johan Likaholm and translated from Swedish into English by Saskia Vogel. So this is a novel. It is a novel set in the winter. It is set in a fictional mountain range. It's all about isolation. It's quite creepy. There's some magic. There's some tarot readings in it. You could also do a huge natural history corner. There's a lot of like plant lore in it. There's some like fire festival stuff. These are all the ways that I would say this has the spirit of the moomins. I'm also going to say up front, this is not a children's book. This is a horror book for grown-ups. Do not give this book to your children under about 15. But if you're a child under 15, make your own decisions about it in the library. It's not It's not up to adults to decide that for you. Obviously. This is a book about nine young women who take on winter jobs at a hotel in the middle of the mountains. They're all like 18, 19, and they've all been sent to this hotel with an idea that it'll make them women in some way, that it'll make them caring, responsible for others, hardworking, selfless. It'll be the making of them. They arrive, this is a completely matriarchal system, there are three other women working in the hotel and they work them really hard. They're always like changing the sheets and washing the crockery and polishing the silver. And as winter gets deeper, no guests show up. It just gets creepier and creepier and they notice like weird smells in the rooms and they feel that the hotel is haunted. There's more than a dash of spook to this book. There are romances between these girls. Some people have said that this is a very feminist book. Johan Leakey Holm, the author, says it's actually about female complicity. I mean, I think you can say that that is still a feminist book. Oh, sure, sure. But that's what she's added when people have said this is a feminist book. I found it through a recommendation from Nina Mingya Powles, who is a writer who wrote Tiny Moons. And she described this as like, winter is a character in this book, which is why I picked it up. 
What's your spirit of the moomins? Following on from last week, the two recommendations I'm doing for Moominland Midwinter are specifically in relationship to Little Mai. So it is the cartoon series Bob's Burgers, which is, broadly speaking, an adult cartoon. It's a, a sitcom based around a burger joint called Bob's Burgers, owned by Bob and his family. It's a cartoon with a lot of heart as it goes on. It started a little bit more edgelordy. The character that is very like Little Mai is the daughter, Louise. She is the youngest daughter, but she's the boss of all of the siblings. She constantly wears bunny ears, and that is hardly ever really explained. It's just what she does. <laughs> she is all about like being fearsome, bossing people around. She's kind of a super villain in child form, always looking to create mayhem, mischief and destruction. See that pelican? Yeah. You're running, right? You have a switchblade taped to your shoe. He does? You will. And on your other shoe, you'll have a lemon. Stab, stab, stab! Sting, sting, sting! What are you doing? I'm squeezing lemon into your wound! Sweet baby blade foot! A wider family is built around them, just like the Moomins, in fact. I love it. I didn't expect to love it like I love it. I don't co-sign every joke in it. We never do. It's enjoyable. There's some great characters in it. Broadly speaking, they are Moomin-like. The other thing we do on the show is we like to recommend a piece of critical art that is looking at stuff in the same way that we look at stuff. So what's your spirit of the Pod Goblin's hat this week? I think in a first for the whole Pod Goblin's hat is not a podcast. Dun, dun, dun. It's a blog series by Talia Franks. Their whole thing is critical fandom. And Talia Franks is my age, and so they came up in the era of Harry Potter and not in the era of Percy Jackson, which was people very slightly younger than us. A lot of us who grew up in the Harry Potter boom never read Percy Jackson. So Talia is now turning their very excellent critical fandom lens on Percy Jackson and they're reading every single book and like me with the Moomins they're coming to this work of fiction for children as an adult and an experienced adult you know who's read lots of other things who's experienced lots of other media and so they really apply their sort of critical lens but they're also as a fan as a fan fiction writer really good at getting excited about the bits of it that they love while really being non too gentle on Rick Riordan when he deserves it. I think they're excellent. I haven't read all of Percy Jackson. Now I'm just reading Talia's blogs and that's how I know what happens in the later books. That's all for episode 14. Starting next week, we're going to be reading The Tales from Moomin Valley. And the first story that we're reading from it is The Fir Tree. But before we go, here are the tiny cliffhangers for next week's episode. What is the Christmas? Is Christmas very hungry? And what can we put at the top of a tree to play Kate Christmas? Until next week, make sure to visibly witness the heroism of your fellow creatures. Bye! Bye!